creativity is about imagining a different way of doing things. And when accompanied by self-belief, it can completely change the world. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, the not-so-serious business podcast to spark imagination, creativity and curiosity. Let's get straight to it. John, what's caught your curious eye this week? Well, the curious eye this week is uh, I was curious about doing some new cooking in the kitchen. I was getting a bit bored with the recipes. So I, I for some reason, I don't know why, actually, but I decided to make toad in the hole. <laughs> I've never made toad in the hole. I don't know if you would know about that in Australia. I know it's a UK thing, but. I definitely know about it. Having lived in England for a long time, and my mother-in-law is a great toad in the hole cooker. But oh, John, right. what is. What is toad in the hole? <laughs> well, when I made it, <laughs> it was a lot of sausages stuffed in what was like, a, I don't know, <laughs> a rubber case. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was really awful. I got some very strange looks from the kids. It's not going on the menu again. <laughs> but, t- but technically, it's like sausages baked Sa- in. Sausages like- baked in like a, a pancake mix. And it's meant to blossom into this beautiful pie type thing. And, you know, it's all gorgeous and lovely. And then you get gravy on it and stuff. But (laughs) the kids just pick the sausages out. And even they were sort of a bit suspect. (laughs) I don't know what the equivalent is. Have you got like, I don't know, frog in a bucket in Australia? What's the equivalent? However, I was curious. I tried something. It failed. You move on. But, you know, so that was my week. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Experiment quickly, John. We like that. What about you? What's been curious this week for you? What's happened to you? Or? Well, this is the continuing story of something along the lines of the monkey Christ, John. And I've been following the story of these failed art restorations, which come out of, oh. seems to come out of Spain, yeah. mostly. So imagine you've got these let's say, 1700, so maybe 18th century, these beautiful, of that time, these pictures, you know, all of the artwork was very biblical because the church mm-hmm. had money to pay for these types of things. And after two, 300 years, not being looked after that well, these pictures start to fade away, break down. And often what we do, if you go somewhere like, you know, the National Gallery of England or the Louvre, you know, these paintings are beautifully restored. What's been happening, it seems to continue, especially out of Spain, where they have a lot of this style of uh, art, is they will be restored by someone who has no experience whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I've been following this along for quite a while as a keen art lover. And one of these has become known as the Monkey Christ. And this was a lady from the church who was 81. She thought, I'll have a go at restoring Jesus's face. (laughs) She turned him into the monkey Christ, they say, because it looks nasty. I, I cannot, look, I don't want to knock people creating art, but sometimes you need a specialist for a specialist job. Okay. Can we now, get that in the show notes? We will. We'll get a link the, to that in the show notes. Okay. The, the recent one was a beautiful 
almost think like that Greco-Roman uh, sculpture, you know, naked man sort of straddling or not straddling, like lying over some rocks or whatever that may be. And face needed a little bit of work. He's come back looking like Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> and he's got two eyes up here in his forehead, <laughs> which sort of look like you've made them out of clay, just a big mouth. Going, now, I'm, I, I need to put a link, but the continued botching of these beautiful restoration efforts always makes me laugh and smile. And uh, I liked what the Restoration Society of Spain said, do not blame the restorers, blame the people that ask them. So <laughs> they were only doing their best. So the monkey Christ <laughs> has caught my eye this week. John, we're here. We have a great episode. We have a guest episode today. And who's a curious cat we have on this week? Well, I'm genuinely really excited about today's guest and really delighted that he can join us. It's Ash Perrin. And Ash is the founder. He's the CEO of the Flying Seagull Project. And this is a troupe of entertainers who work with children, engage with children, sort of adults as well. But it's all about games and art and craft and music, circus skills, huge amounts of performance. And they do fantastic work in refugee camps, hospitals, orphanages, schools. But they also then do stuff at festivals as well. And they do great stuff at festivals, which is where I first saw Ash and the Flying Seagull Project. And so fantastically, they've entertained my children many, many times. And they're a wonderful outfit, a wonderful group of human beings. He is also, by his own kind of writings, a professional noisemaker, a childhood conservationist, a rabble rouser, and lifelong play enthusiast. So a fantastic job title there. And then the last thing I think I should say as we introduce Ash is to say he is the owner of a most wondrous beard. <laughs> and it is perfect for the occupational philosophers because, as people might see when they sort of check the notes after the shows, it's very becoming of a philosopher. You know, if you think about Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, all of the, the Greek heavyweights, as we might call them, Ash would most certainly seem very much in keeping with that kind of style and gravitas. So, yeah, absolute delight, Ash Perrin. Hey, all right, well, welcome, Ash. I mean, what an, what an introduction. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know about philosopher, but I mean, if you just don't shave for long enough, it happens on its own. But um, yeah, credit-wise, I'm not sure if the beard is up there. And lockdown has turned many into shabby philosophers with a, with a half-assed excuse for a beard. But look, Ash, we're going to cut straight to it. What's caught your eye this week? This week, I just know it's been one of those weeks where you try as hard as possible not to look at anything because it all was so hateful for so many days after like Trump and then lockdown and then all the conspiracy and over there. Right. And it's like, oh, I just tried to look away. But then I just I can't help but watch. And this is embarrassing. This maybe is something for later with the guilty pleasures question. But I'm obsessed with Dragon's Den. I don't know. I don't own a TV. <laughs> I haven't owned a TV in 20 years. And then I was on Facebook doing some work and a thing popped up. And it was like, whoa, check out the dragon's reaction to this moronic entrepreneur. Who was, and the, what, the first one was it was a bed sheet with a line down the middle that they were selling for couples who oh. fight over bed space. And it was the most awful idea I've ever seen. But the guy that was pitching, it, I thought, is this comedic? Is this staged? 
And so, yeah, now what's caught my eye is, is staged, almost hilariously well-acted, perfect contemporary ironic reality tv and that's what i think dragon's den is because not a thing on it is real not a person is real not a moment is real none of it's authentic but because it's called reality tv somehow you watch it like it is and you go some of these might be people who actually are pitching that some of these already have the deal and it's just this is part of the product launch and then all the reactions are cut and faked anyway so leah pathetas is shaking his head <laughs> from probably a week ago from another episode or they've just filmed this reaction. <laughs> yeah, what's caught my eye is is that the actually the, the comedic potential of the right perspective when engaging with reality TV. And it's been quite a quite a relaxing week just in my truck watching watching <laughs> Dragon's Den from and the best Dragon's Den was like the late 2009 2010 era. Oh, good era for yeah. it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's I know been, it was it's supposed to be something cleverer. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a terrible start to the podcast because I should have said something interesting like some play theorem or whatever. But no, the truth is, I think there's something silly and playful about humanity anyway. And Dragon's Den is a fine place to track it down. What I like about the the line down the sheet is it sort of signifies something maybe in the relationship anyway. But what if you wake up and you've rolled over? Like, I've wasted my money. This cost yeah. us $300. Like, you know, you wake up over the line. It's sort of... Yeah, what, yeah. What, what and also, what, what sort of stage in your relationship must you be at when you go, uh, uh, excuse me, you're over the line. Like, we all want half the bed, but like, you know, I, I'm tall and I don't move and my girlfriend is short and she moves a lot. So we just naturally have our, but yeah, it'd be really a pernickety and horribly vicious loving relationship when you call them out. There is a boundary for a reason. You know, and it was embroidered so that you could feel it with your leg. If you're not wearing any, any pajama bottoms, just, just you know, pants, you can feel uh, the embroidery. I just wonder if he might he might come back later, Ash, in about ten years' time, and say, "I've got something new to show you, which is separate rooms." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a and new we're working product. on we're working on something called divorce. So you know, <laughs> further down the line, you literally don't have to even see each other. You can imagine the conversation, though, like maybe the, say, the ladies getting it or the gents are getting together and they go, oh, no, it's been a bad week. He's bought that sheet. He's bought that sheet in. Yeah. Uh, I've read about this. When the sheet comes in, things go. Yeah. Oh, when the, when the okay. sheet hits the fan, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's awful. It's an awful idea. And also imagine, like, the person that bought it. Let's say he bought it and he goes home and he goes, Hey, um, I bought this. Uh, like, how do you introduce, how, how do you bring that into your marital bed without risking death? It's got to come from her. I can't imagine any man being brave enough to. It, it, it could be the, um, the divorce sheet struggling to end your relationship. Have mm. my split sheet. <laughs> yeah. Put your hand under the pillow to find the paperwork and the pen ready to sign. <laughs> Can't say something with your own words. Just buy my sheet and you'll be divorced next week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, you know what? Because that was a rubbish answer. There was another thing that caught my eye, which I'm sure you guys saw too, but just quickly was, uh, did you see it was a New York ballet dancer who's now like in her 80s or something. She's got quite developed dementia and she's sat in a chair and she's very non-responsive in a wheelchair. And um, she used to be a, you know, so like a lead ballerina for the New York ballet or something like this. And they play through these headphones, Swan Lake. 
And like you just really slowly, you've got to look it up. It's the most beautiful thing. And she just really slowly, like one hand turns and then the other. And then she starts to do all of the movements. Like she you know, can barely talk, doesn't have any real recognition of who she is anymore. And that, at least that's the premise, whether how accurate that is, I don't know. But And then she basically in her chair starts to move with this incredible grace. And then it cuts to actual footage from her when she was dancing Swan Lake as the lead. And it's the right moves at the right time. And somewhere in her latent memory, jogged by the music so yeah that that's quite a that's the thing that caught my eye because we work a lot with with older people we haven't now since the refugee crisis but before that we used to work in adult psychiatric hospitals and things and you know the, it's amazing the depth and the knowledge and the you know the kind of detail that you just assume isn't there because they have a, a mental health problem or a degenerative disease but like yeah this lady was just it's perfect and she hasn't danced it for 40 years but her body just knew the moves Wow, that was a good thing Hey, Ash, and where are you today, by the way? We're talking to people sort of in different parts of the world at different times. So where's home for you today? This morning, I woke up in my... I've got a vintage show lorry that I used to that we used to tour in, and it's parked up on a piece of land in Bedfordshire. So I've been there for the last three, four days, just having some campfires and enjoying the wind and the rain and just the blusteriness. And now I'm in the Midlands. I've come to my girlfriend's house because we needed some Wi-Fi for this chat so <laughs> again not a very romantic answer but yeah midland kettering i'll send you a sheet no no we, we, no, the mid- we, we, we lay a burning strip we just get a little bit of lighter fluid and then you really don't roll over it keeps you separate <laughs> now ash i've been reading you've got a beard oil coming out What's some elements of a great beard oil? Is that right? Have I, have I read this correctly? It correct? is right. I'm just surprised that I don't know where that is. Who did I tell about that? The elements of a good beard oil is a much stronger scent than most beard oil companies think we want. Bear in mind, not since the hipster movement, but like generally big beards and moustaches gather quite a lot of their own scent. Most of us, I think there's a large percentage of smokers in in the bearded community because they often are the more wayward or the more outward fire-based smoke-having whiskey. So anyway, even if you're not a smoky, drinky, hippie fire dweller, you probably get get food in your beard and stuff goes in your... So they kind of make these oils, you put them in and it smells great for the first 10 minutes and then it's drowned out by fried egg and coffee or something. So uh, <laughs> a very strong scent is for me. And then also for me, like I time mine because I make them all myself and have done for years for that reason. But I do seasonal. So in the spring, I like a kind of citrusy, lemony kind of lemongrass feel. And this time of year, I'm moving into a kind of bergamot and cedarwood and pine and then by christmas i'll go into a spicy sort of mold spice <laughs> oh, i didn't even know i thought about it that detail till just now um, I, i've just you've just described the whole range it's fantastic yeah. it's almost like a menu but. <laughs> and also you've got with the flying seagull project i know we've we've talked many times but uh, i know that one of the things coming up is the the mobile truck the kind of moving theater type um, fun wagon i was going to call it chitty chitty bash bang or something like that i don't know okay <laughs> i mean you've said it now there's no taking that back so i think we can i'll pack you up great option i'll put it in the mix 
yeah, yeah it's called that, flying showmobile and um, flying showmobile it's basically like especially for the camps i mean to be totally honest and i and i you know we are about love for everybody and solidarity for everybody but the situation in the camps and the refugee camps in europe and especially greece that they are abhorrent they are horrific and so whatever we're all going through as a result of COVID-19, you know, the stress, the worry, the financial impact, the lack of movement, whatever else, you can multiply that by a thousand and add it on to an already horrific situation. So my first thought was, how are we going to ever be allowed back in the camps? Because COVID-19, yeah, Greece hasn't had too much of a bad time, to be honest. They've, they've managed it quite well, but it has been used as an opportunity to really lock down and shut down the camps and so visits are restricted and they can just use COVID as a reason now. And not all of the government want to, but there is a growing resentment towards Greece having to deal with the refugee crisis alone, which is where it kind of comes from. So anyway, so I thought, how am I ever going to get let in again? So we bought a Luton. One of the most boring, unromantic vehicles ever created is the Ford Luton Transit. <laughs> but we've now chopped the entire side into a proscenium arch, added on a kind of old-fashioned fishing kind of ratchet whatever it's called winch and then so now you can go in and then we thought okay but how do we get out of the van and into the back without coming in contact so we cut a hole in the roof don't tell my insurers but we basically you sit in the steer below the steering wheel and above your head now there's an escape hatch so you can climb in the escape hatch through to the back lower the stage down when the stage comes down you then fold out these further bits that keep them two meters away from the stage and so you can do the entire show and an interactive kind of guided play session without actually ever technically entering the camp. I imagine we'll, we can look at some pictures because I'd like to put in our show notes just so we can look at this thing maybe unwinding or winding back up or this yeah. mechanism sounds fascinating. There was, I, I, yeah, there was a launch of it. I think you did you did send something out, didn't you, Ash? Yeah, I put a video yeah. on Facebook. I said, like, it's not entirely yeah. definitely 100% finished, but there is one on there. And the best thing about it is on the way up, it makes this horrific clicking sound, which I quite like. It's like... Da, 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 da. So it's kind of, there's something ship-like. So now we're, we're actually recording this weekend a kind of five-minute track of mechanical sounds, clockwork noises, and, and train whistles, which we'll play on a PA. So when it pulls up, we'll climb in the back, fill the thing with a smoke machine, and then start to lower it with the soundtrack of like, and the thing will just come down with smoke pouring out. Oh, that's going to be bad. <laughs> There's such a sensorial experience as well for your I'm gonna come customers or that's not the right word, but for the people who you engage with. So there's mm. so much like that visual auditory and if you can't have that maybe that kinesthetic because you're separated by you know, that imposed distance to have those noises and sounds. Yeah. I think will buys you into that experience and that sense of anticipation as well, like yeah. whatever's coming. So, yeah, that sounds amazing. I love it. Yeah, it's going to be cool. And, and that's the point. It's ultimate escapism. You know, that's the point of this. Mm. It's like, and people often in, in this country will say, like, oh, you know, it's, it's a bit of escapism. We like, but they need to escape. These kids need to escape these horrible camps at least for an hour. And it, so when the ramp comes down, again, in the video you've seen, it doesn't work yet. We're changing it on, on Monday. When the, when the ramp comes down, there's then a hard set of doors which are painted like the red curtains. And I'll be standing in front of it at this point with smoke all around me. And I'll say, are you ready to join us in the world of the flying seagulls? And then we pull the doors back 
and the whole wall folds in on itself. And behind it is the actual curtains that you just saw painted in real life with a cast of people there. So it's like we're literally going to take them on a journey and transport them from concrete to smoke to visuals to the real thing. And then there's actually the people they just saw in a picture in real life. So it's like, yeah, it has to be that sensory. I think we have to we have to literally wrench them out of that disgusting place and just take them somewhere cool and fun and daft and beautiful. And it's like great design. I always describe design. You don't really know what's great about it, but there's so many things behind it. It just it just sort of builds up. So like this, there's, it's not just, hey, here we are. There's those elements of build and layering and emotion and connection. And, oh, I love it. Now, just before we move on into a little bit of your early life, let's say, your clown name is Bash. How do you choose a clown name? Often they... I mean, like with my team, most of the time they're kind of given by me because I'm obsessed with making up silly names for people. But then, like you'll you'll go through a load, and then one will land, and you'll go, "Yeah, that's it." Okay. But like, but Bash for me, Bash was because I used to have a, I still do have actually, we're still friends. I used to have a friend who I hate now. We used to, have, I've got a mate called Bala. <laughs> His name's Bala Krishna, but everyone calls him Bala, and we worked together kind of continuously when we were in drama school. We we're best mates and worked all the time together. And so we, because we were a double act, people used to say, rather than saying, give him, give Bala and Ash a call, everyone just started saying, call Bash or speak to Bash. And then we had a company called Bash. And then he was Bala Bash and I was Ash Bash. But now he doesn't entertain as a clown anymore. And, and Bash kind of, again, it, it landed with me because it's fairly onomatopoeic. Like I am too much energy. I'm, you know, I'm, if I'm in a house, it feels like you're kind of on edge. Like well, he's going to break something. Just care, watch him. Don't lend me anything. I'll, I'll accidentally break it. I'm like Lenny from of mice and men. Like let me play with the rabbits. He just, whoops! I broke his head. He just, <laughs> so with some of the seagulls that you've worked with, then Bash, you've you've christened them along the way, haven't you? I remember. I think you said there was. One of the talks that you gave was about, is it Bobby No Good or something? And it was a. Uh... Yeah. But again, like, <laughs> I, but the, the again kids I, are... I, I guess I say I give them names, but that's not true. I guess there are certain names that are said that stick. So Bobby No Good was because the kids in, in the camps, they know there's some phrases of English they all know, like, good, no good, he no good, you no good, tomorrow come, cinema, things like this. And they used to all just say, I don't know why these kids just picked on Bully. I was on, on Bobby all the time. All of them did. And they say, Bobby, no good. Bobby, no good. And we just started calling him Bobby, no good. And now he's going to be a doctor. He's doing a PhD about seagull work and that stuff. And um, with the, a couple of universities, he's got a, you know, we've got a partnership with him. And literally his name on his blog is Dr. Bobby, no good. But, um, <laughs> and then it's like Isabel Wolf, Wolfie, her name is Wolf. And then, and again, she's quite wolf-like. So... But then there's names yeah. that they don't want, like Donna. We've got a girl from the Shetland Islands, Donna, and everyone wants to call her Dudu, and I call her Deny the New. Deny the New! <laughs> but she won't accept it. So I just have to keep going until it sticks. <laughs> now, I can tell you a little story about John. Once I was, uh, and maybe how his name stuck, how your name finds you. Once we were working at a, a conference or an event and we we're over in Spain at this beautiful, beautiful resort. And I, I would never ever think I'd love to go to a resort for a week. It's not my type of holiday, but this place was just so quiet and peaceful. And uh, I was there with another Australian 
person and John was our third facilitator and we had loads of free time for this gig. John comes out to the pool, 35 degrees, in white socks, <laughs> as English people do. And so from that time, and he's lying by the pool in his white socks. He didn't want to get his feet dirty or whatever it is. He's been Johnny White, Johnny white Socks. So, so until this day, we, his nickname is White Socks. So. I quite like that. I think I'm going to try, try and adopt that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other part of that is the fact that I was wearing sandals with those white socks as well. Oh, no, I, 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 I know. The English. Sandals and socks is more of a German thing, I think. I don't know if it's like <laughs> white socks are definitely English, but yeah. socks and sandals, not even we go that far. I hate to say it, it's come back in. All of the, uh, my son's 14, they all wear called slides, which is sort of like the heavier sort of sandals with the big bit at the front. They all wear socks. That's, uh, and I used to say, to him, oh, no, no, no. And he's a dad, loser. So yeah. <laughs> I've actually just bought myself a pair of slides. And I have to say, it's one of the best purchases ever made. It was two euros from the, from the shop in Samos where we were working. And I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I want some. And it's, they're amazing. They just go on and off so quick. You're going outside. <laughs> Throw some coffee in the bush. It's fine. Just put your sliders on. It's fast. Does this mean Crocs are no longer fashionable? I hate Crocs. I think Crocs have always been the most disgusting thing I've ever... I hate Crocs with a passion. I never owned any for that reason. And flip-flops annoy you. They get in the middle of thongs. They get in the middle of your toes. They're horrible. Especially when you've got dry, cracked feet. You've got this thong going... Yeah, I'm all about yeah. sliders. Although I was in Greece this year in the summer, and I bought myself... You know, like those... They're kind of Velcro-y, strappy sandal things that go around your ankle. They're really a stable summer shoe. And I thought they were quite cool. I remember them like being like, yeah, you know, pretty cool. And I, I went to buy them and my Greek friend was like, oh, my God, you just cannot buy that. They are so not cool. So, well, firstly, I'm, I'm a 39-year-old bearded, slightly chubby clown called Basher. I'm not worried about being cool anymore, but, but it's such a practical shoe. When you know you're getting old, it's a practice summer shoe. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm just, I'm not going to talk about Crocs anymore. I'm just going to put my pair to one side. <laughs> hey, Crocs are popular. No shame in them, but I just, I just found they were always too big. Why don't people buy Crocs at the size of their feet? Why do they buy these boats and then just wobble around in them? This has gone wrong. I've ended up being called Johnny White Socks and an owner of Crocs. I'm just going to get ridiculed for the rest of my life. You need you need a big sense of introspection after today, John. <laughs> Shall we move to some a quick fire round, if we may? Yes, Ash. So, and starting at the beginning, some of those early days for you, because as we're interested in, we're interested in people's journeys as to how they became creative and curious and imaginative or whatever, and often that starts with early school days and stuff. So we just thought, quick fire round, three words that described you at school. Hmm. Energetic, misunderstood, and show off. Is show off two words? No, it's hyphenated. Show off. We'll take, we'll we'll take that. <laughs> yeah. We'll take that. We'll take that. All right. Now, in the theme of rapid fire, we won't dwell on that, but <laughs> even though there's so many questions to ask, what was the one thing that got you most excited at school? Mm, I mean, I, I, it's a cliche, but I did drama class, drama and music class. It was just, the teachers were just nicer. One more question for me, Ash, was about teachers that inspired you, because obviously what, we, what we're what we seeing is that thing where there's often some figure or figures that are 
instrumental to someone's journey or play a big part. You talk about Mrs. King and you talk about Dr. Hewitt, I think, in the book. And quite different topic areas. I think Mrs. King, Mrs. King English, was it? And Hewitt was physics or something. It was a real yeah. disparate sort of, but they both kind of played a big part for you. Yeah, what, well, what was that? Was art. She was an art teacher in um, oh, art. Okay. a younger school. And then, yeah, Dr. Chewitt, as we called him. Chewitt was physics. But um, what they both had, which united them, was they were just passionate about what they did. So like, okay, physics is cool when you're older and, and it's not complicated. You're not scared of it. Physics is cool. The, the laws of physics are amazing. And when you can actually like see it represented in a fun way or in a way that like, like wow, like, we put up big tops and it's really hard to get the pegs out. They're a metre and a half long. But the rules of leverage mean if I've just got a long enough pole, I can go pop and it pops out like physics is cool. But it's taught by such boring, dispassionate, disappointed science failures that none of us ever realise how cool it is in school. Whereas Dr. Hewitt, he thought physics was the best thing ever. And he was playful and daft. And I remember once I walked into his class, you know, you get those like electric silver static balls and you can put your hand if you touch someone else it gives them electric shock he had a stick with a piece of string attached his hand on the on the ball and as he walked into the class he was just whipping us with an electrified stick going run perrin run i was going ah, what are you doing you're, you're, you're mad he's going this is static electricity and it was like he had us Bam. <laughs> we were in. that was a lesson on static electricity so yeah, those two, they were, they were renegades. They were both brilliant teachers, super passionate. And they just were, you know, they were so confident with it that they'd put it into the language of playfulness, which is one that kids enjoy. So we had a great time learning how to draw perspectives or study. And even when I was in trouble. So I got in trouble a lot in, in, in that stage of school with Dr. Chewitt, with Chewitt and actually Jan, Jan King. I'd walk in and they would go, no, out. And I go, I'm not even sat down. They go, I know, but you know and I know that you've got that look in your eye. Like, ah, oh, come on, I can't help it. And they're like, I know, you're not in trouble, but you're not coming in today. You're going to, and that was it. So like, I wasn't in trouble. They didn't like hate me for what I was like, but they, and they knew I couldn't help it, but there was no way that they were going to let me disrupt the lesson for everybody else. So, and I never was offended. They never, they, I was never pissed off by it. I never felt sad about it. So, yeah. Les Tucker, you, you know, all of us can do it. You can just name these people who just, just by teaching it English literature at A-level, he actually, I got an A-star at English Lit in at A-level, which is after school. So it was in your 16 to 18. And I got it by saying that Midsummer Night's Dream is rubbish. And it was written as a placating piece of sycophantium as a gift of the king, which is what Shakespeare wrote it for. He wrote it for the king as a gift. It's vile. It's a piece of spit. It's a waste of his talents. And it's a piece of sycophantic giftage is what I wrote. I don't care too much anymore. But, you know, when you're 16, you want to put your opinion into venom. And then John Donne, you know, we used to argue in English lit class about whether John Donne's sexism was real or whether it was a convention to purvey his poetic message. But we would argue like, oh, come on. No, it's not. You've got 16 year olds who, you know, really falling out with each other over a Jacobean court poet's intentions. That's a good teacher. Ash, one of the things as well I noticed that for me, there was one something in there, which is they, um, you, I think you said they recognised you. There was something about, and they accepted you. Uh, there was something about acceptance and recognition mm. that I think you you talked about. But uh, but also the high energy thing, I think, was it Dr. Hewitt called it perinitis? Mm. Yeah, perinitis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could you say again? But 
yeah there was uh but like but it was cool like the whole point was to learn it wasn't so even like i remember jan king mrs king she unfortunately took her life in the end it was one of the first times i ever knew that someone could be sad it was whilst i was in her school and that's why it stood out and like and we all cried like we'd lost a friend you know my brother wrote a poem which i read at the funeral and like you know it was a really we loved the person who passed and we all knew she'd taken her own life and that was a learning process and it's not really relevant to this discussion but that's anyway it's what happened in the end so but she would do crazy things like she kicked me out of the class. I walked in and she said no. And had she have known about perinitis, she probably would have said that. But it didn't exist yet because Dr. Hewitt hadn't made it up. So she sends me into the corridor and I have to draw the corridor in perspective. So I'm sat there with rulers and what have you, drawing the corridor where I've been kicked out into in perspective. And that's cool. It's quite fun trying to get it right. And after two lessons, I was like, I'd really tried, like I properly tried that time. And then just before the end of the second session, I went off and I wandered around the school to see if any of my mates had been kicked out of their classes. I just got bored. You know, I was like, oh, I'll just go and see what's happening. So I wandered off. And when I came back in the big fat marker, she'd written in black marker right across the entire piece I'd spent two weeks drawing. Where are you? Question mark. So like yeah. just destroyed my piece of work. And I was like, standing there going, Mrs. King, why did you do that? She was like, I just wondered where you were. If you'd been sat there, wouldn't I need to do that, would I? So I wasn't in trouble. She acknowledged what I'd done. She highlighted by destroying, you know, it was just fun. It was just, it was cool. They, they, you know, they knew that I wasn't a bad kid, I, and that, but they also knew that there had to be a different management of it. And I'm sure it's the same for you guys. You know, we all have those teachers who look you in the eye and you feel like, yeah, this one gets me. Like, and it might be your sports coach or your, or your violin teacher or whatever. But when, when, when an adult who you're meant to respect looks at you and gets you and, and likes you for that, that's a, such a nice feeling. And I think that might be a big part of behind the work that you do when people in your audience will feel, ah, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm got here. Would that, would yeah. you say that would be along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, well, I have a rule that I tell the team they have to do, which is every, uh, rather than say you mustn't have any favourites, I say all of them has to be your favourite. See, they, ha- they, I want every kid to leave thinking that I like them most. And that's to do with eye contact engagement, like, we call it spinning plate techniques. If I've got 100 kids, each kid is a spinning plate. So I have to look at them meaningfully, at least often enough to keep the plate spinning. Otherwise, it falls over and they go. And you should be able to pause any show and say, Ash, what's happening? I'll say two kids at the back about to have a fight. She got bored. He's texting. These two are worried and they haven't spoken up loud enough because that kid over there is making them feel intimidated. You know, you should know that sort of scope. See, I want every kid to leave our session feeling like they were our favorite. And that means, isn't it nice when you're the favorite? And I think I think good teachers do make all kids feel like that or good play leaders or parents or whatever. It's not you can't have favorites, just everyone should have a reason why they're your favorite. Uh, I really like that, John. I really like that. And Ash as well. So now, John, I think it's. I said it. Don't give it to John. (laughs) He didn't say I like that, John. I asked a question. (laughs) <laughs> that's what I thought that John didn't say anything that is a 10 point question nice one <laughs> now speaking of questions time for a thought experiment John we love games as I know you do Ash we call them thought experiments though because we thought that was a fancy word for a game <laughs> so we're going to play a game which is inspired by you it's from you've got a game in your playbook the play revolution the real play revolution which is called If I Were Prime Minister. But we're going to make a slight variation on that because I know that's a kind of I went to market and. So we're going to do it If I Were Prime Minister and we want your top three policies. 
as prime minister. So if I were prime minister, I would bum 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 bum. And you can start if you want. You can tell us your three policies as prime minister. We well, don't have to. Do you want me yeah, to start? Think about it. Yeah, you start. I've got, I've, I've got one. I've got two good ones. I want to get my third one. <laughs> Simon, do you want to go first? Sure. I'm ready to Someone's rumble. Someone's done their homework. Me and John are desperately scrabbling away in the side. I've got notes. Look, I've got notes. There's something there. Look. Okay, now, my theory uh, is now a little bit of background. My wife, who's my wife now, but my girlfriend back in the mid-2000s, we spent a month in Cuba. And this was when Fidel Castro was still alive. So it really wasn't that different to it was in the you know, the 1960s. If you know anything about Cuba, no one's allowed to trade with them, et cetera, et cetera, because of the state. So almost caught in a little bit of a time warp. But you spend a month there, you understand a lot more about the history. And when Fidel and Che and their band of uh, merry men decided to overthrow the dictator government backed by the states in the 1960s, and I won't go too much into the history, but they sort of had, there was quite an oppressed culture and quite an oppressed environment and low literacy and all that type of thing so they in uh, the plan was to sort of invent a little bit more of this utopia and what some of the great things was in a year they'd gotten rid of illiteracy everyone became literate in the year and they also thought look as part of moving on we want to dedicate a day a week to culture and so it was literally going to be, you know, one day of the week you had to participate in art, dance, singing, whatever that culture was, and it was just set aside for that. So that was that was the day of the week. So I'd like to put in a day where we do something creative, we do something cultural, and we do something which involves us thinking differently. Imagine if we play, we have fun. So there's a day set aside a week for that play, fun, culture piece. And this is actually almost the same as the one before. But the four-day week, because in corporate land, all the studies are pointing to, and there's some been really successful examples of this in Australia, if you work less, you're way more productive because your mind shifts into gear. You have a hump day in the middle of the week or you have your Friday off and we just go into a different space and we give us back a little bit of purpose and soul in our life outside that grind. So I'd do that. And this one, I would make everyone spend at least five minutes a day with their bare feet on a patch of grass. So they are connected to the earth. They earth themselves. There's a lot of science behind this. And, but just you, you, know, you feel it one with nature. And even if you live in an apartment block, you've got your earthing patch where you can go and stand with bare feet on the grass because I just think that feels wonderful, especially you know, in summer in the UK when you've had um, feet, have feet on all winter, you have shoes on all winter, then you can put... Well, I had, had your Crocs and socks. <laughs> I was going to say, I took my Crocs off. <laughs> you know, the time, John, the when you, you take your socks off and those sort of white English feet touch on some dirt and it's like, I don't know, there's something yeah. magical. Like, you take your white feet. socks off and you can't see the colour difference. <laughs> <laughs> well that is true <laughs> i think someone's drawn toes on my socks yeah yeah i think I, my inability to tan led me to being called casper the ghost when i was traveling <laughs> all right john what, what, very pale okay right so i'm going to uh so politically if i were prime minister i would make barack obama a special advisor just because i think he's really cool and he's always comes out with a lot of sense and he makes me feel calm as if I know what he's, he knows what he's doing. So that's number one. 
Then if I were Prime Minister, number two is I would teach creativity, teamwork and empathy in schools. So a lot of the work that we do as we're working with businesses and people in different organisations, that seems to be the thing that I keep seeing repeatedly is that people coming together, being able to work together, being able to innovate, think creatively and empathy, huge thing, just being able to step into someone else's shoes seems to be uh, a bit of a deficit at the minute. So that would be a serious one, I think. That goes on curriculum. And then the third one, <laughs> is, I was running out of ideas at this point, which is why I'm not Prime Minister. I would set out a set of stocks outside Parliament and whoever was the most disappointing MP of the week, we'd put them in there. <laughs> How long for? <laughs> well, I, th I thought rotate them on a weekly basis, maybe. So, you know, you'd get stuck in and then people would throw rotten fruit, tomatoes, whatever they wanted to you. And then you get released and then the next one goes in. So, you know, that's 52 MPs a year getting in the stocks. I thought that was quite a good way to keep their feet to the fire. Or maybe that's another idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or floggings. Just bring back floggings. <laughs> I'm going to get slightly medieval here. Go on then. <laughs> so, Ash, we... we well... We've shared that. No Let's word of a lie, and I can prove it. Four-day week was my first. Oh, you hey. can't see but, I, but it's fine. I actually had four written down, so I'll take off four-day week because you've already claimed it. That's all right. So I'm going to start on the Make silly one. three-day week. Yeah, two-day week. That's it. I'm going to start on the silly one because we have to have a bit of fun. All neckties would be banned unless fluorescent. <laughs> because they are the rag of the oppressed and this idea that if you don't wear a tie you can't be trusted i think the opposite if you wear a tie what are you covering up what are you trying to convince me of no one likes to wear a tie it's not the victorian era take your tie off under your top button it's not school and there's this idea that if you took your button up and put that up you're some sort of trustworthy authoritarian mm -hmm. respect now all ties banned unless fluorescent fact done like it deal universal basic income now, it's a little bit heavy for a chat, but I like the idea of universal basic income and it just makes more sense. Now, how are we going to pay for it is the question. Easy peasy. All politicians on minimum wage. Then we'll find out who actually wants to be a politician for the right reasons. All politicians, minimum living wage. I guarantee you we would see minimum wage raised every year by decent amounts of money. So the poorest who are forced to live like that are governed by people who live the same in terms of finances. So... Minimum wage for politicians, and then we'll say you then recognise the plight of others. And then there's. Right. Have I done three? Shit, I did already. No, no, go. No, no, no. I think I did, but let's take out UBI. Oh no, UBI is one. It was UBI one and part two, wasn't it? The final one is I had this dream, and this is true. I had a dream, and in the dream, I'd been asked to be an advisor for the play division of the Department of Empathy, Decency, and Kindness. And it was, a, it was a part of the governing process. So let's say you do things like, and it was like everything had to pass through that house. It was like, just whether it's decent or not, whether it's a kind and empathetic thing to do. So the, when I was in my dream, the thing I had to preside over was at the time, it was, you know, when they were trying to build car parks in the forest, they were trying to sell the forest off in England and like send to private owners. And we were like, why? They said, oh, because we spend 15 pounds a year from the public purse on the new forest car park and we've got to save money. And anyway, everyone came out and said, stop it. You can't sell forest to save 15 quid. That's stupid. But then you think to yourself, 
there is an argument for it. And how they get these things through is they're always like, well, economically, it makes sense. So I thought, okay, cool. From now on, you have to go to like, you know, bring it up. I've got this idea that we are going to sell off all the forests because they cost the government £150,000 a year. Cool. Passes through the OK Ideas department. Then it goes to finances and they say, well, add it up. If we didn't have that and finances go, yeah, there is a point. We do spend it. We wouldn't have to. But then it goes into the decency, whatever I call it, decency, empathy, Uh, decency, and whatever it was department. And we go, no way. Are you kidding? Don't do that. They're forests. They're nice. They should be open for everybody. It makes people feel nice to walk in forests. We're not selling them to private owners so that nature can be the possession of someone with money. It's for everybody. Sorry. Uh -uh. Motion denied. And so you couldn't pass a law that didn't go through the kind of decency, empathy and kindness department. So that's what I would introduce as prime minister. And no law could be passed without clearing that part of the house. The intention of our show, or one of the things we're passionate about is, as occupational philosophers, is delving into the creative, the curious, the imaginative, and and just the importance of having that in our lives, whether it's on a personal level, a work level, team level, whatever that may be. And look, loving reading the stuff where you talk about this. So let's dive into this. And I read in your book that play is a universal feeling of liberation, creative expression, and a safety net for learning. So can you just tell us more about that? Maybe about the first bit, which is the universal feeling of liberation, creativity, and expression, and then the safety net for learning, because I think there's two pieces in there. So mm. just jump in. Well, I mean, the liberation part is that I think true play, genuine, actual, dynamic play, is not output focused, but experience focused. So that's you know, it's different from sport. Like you can sport is great. I've got nothing against sport other than I can't play it, but I love it. But it's like it matters whether you score, whether you don't, whether you run fast, whether you don't. Actual play is purely for the experience of play, which means it liberates you from the idea of something being good enough and not good enough, or you being not strong enough or not getting it. It actually doesn't even matter if you don't get the game because some games are even better when you adapt to them. I mean, we've all probably got favorite games in your own families. You've made up your own rules for because it's a bit better that way for us. So yeah, play is that liberated sense of you can be your full self without fearing that there's such a thing as not good enough. And I think it possibly is one of the only areas of life where that's true. Maybe in love as well, like actual love and parental love or, you know, like I know parents beat themselves up about whether they're good enough or not, but all you've got to do is look at the love in your kid's eyes to know if you do your best, that's enough. The end. If you do your best in life, that's enough. You can't do more than your best. So get over it. You ain't going to be everything. And in terms of expression, like you look at kids in a playground. I was where I, I was staying in the field at the minute. I told you I'm sleeping in my old show truck. And the school must be the tiniest school in the area. I can't imagine there's more than 50 kids and it's miles away. But every playtime, I can hear them. They are roaring across the skies, screeching. Like, ah! oh, and you think it's that noise of a playground. If you hear it, you all know what it is instantly. Oh, it must be a playground, must be a school. And that is the noise of play expressing itself. That is a liberated soul roaring its existence to the universe. And if we have any other right and every other sovereignty on this earth, if there's anything else that we are able and justified in doing, it surely is that in the brief time we're here to feel liberated enough to roar our our existence and expression to the skies above without fear of failure. And that's what play is. And then the, uh, that, well, the creativity bit as well then, Ash, is 
and that's where it comes together, isn't it? That's where that I'm liberated. I can express myself, and that's where true creation comes about. Where there's where you don't yeah, feel restricted. Yeah, to, but everything is creativity, man. Like everything is creativity, and people talk about creativity, and and immediately you think art, drawing, mm. music. The first person who thought about the idea that maybe a computer could be made smaller and it's sat in your lap in a thing called a laptop. What a creative thought. The first time you draw a breath when you're born is, is it's an instinct. But then when you put it out and pull it in and hold it a bit like you watch kids, sometimes they'll hold their breath for no reason. They're just playing around with a creative approach to breathing and then walking. I put it in the book. You stand up, you fall over, you see other people, you try, you create ways. And bit by no one can actually teach you how to walk. They don't say, now twist your inner vertebrate to the left and tighten your quadricep. They don't do that. We play and create. And everything you do, really, if you do it in confidence and if you do it in authenticity, is an act of creativity because every second of the day you're creating your life. And if you're fearful, yeah, you, you kind of pause that or you restrict that. But if you know that there's, yes, any, we all end up in the same spot. We all end up in the same place. Whichever path you take, they all end in the same bit. So you might as well just create the life you want. And that might mean, can you do a podcast called The Occupational Philosophers with two friends who write a script and invite people? You created an idea, you started doing it, and here we are chatting and what a lovely experience. Like, you know what I mean? Someone made up Squadcast that we're recording on. Someone created that. They thought about everything is creativity and that it's a secret to a happy life because we can all just create something and together to collectively we're probably going to move forward if we do so we've created occupational philosophers we're trying to sort of get everybody fired up about being creative and curious and imaginative and playful and i, I keep coming back to that play because I, I do think it's an interesting word but we don't we don't play there's a there's moments where we, we aren't playful and we don't try to be creative or we're not curious we kind of bunker down or hunker down and we and we don't and I just you must see that that there are things that where you just see people just stop being playful and I wonder what in your mind stops people being playful there are things that make you an adult there are things that mean like I know I made I, I, we joked about it earlier in the book where I said if you're below the age of 99 being told to grow up as an act of violence and, and it's a fun thing to say but in truth when you have kids you have a responsibility to mm. your kids and that means if you played all day making up new products and podcasts and making up ways to express yourself cool who's paying the mortgage who's making sure the kids are taught who's getting the clothes clean like there is like a a practical set of logistics and needs that changes as you get older especially when you add in complexities like mortgages or businesses or children or, or all three probably at the same time so no, that's part of it and unfortunately you know, there has to be in some way a compromise around how far and how many hours of the day you're able to express your creative liberation. For me, it's every hour because that's my job, but I'm lucky. Mm. So, Ash, one of the opening quotes in the chapter in the book on play is really quite interesting, which is creativity is about imagining a different way of doing things. And when accompanied by self-belief, it can completely change the world. And I, I wonder whether or how you saw that happening already, how you see that creativity starting to transform things in a big way, or where do you see the big potential for that kind of creative thought changing things in a really transformative way? Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because every, I mean, a lot of the book, when I was writing the book, actually, I kind of almost got to the point that I thought, this is a joke. I could write it in one sentence. 
which is you know and it and it was like i'm doing this huge explanation making such a lot of complexity out of something which is really simple which is that every idea is essentially an act of play of the mind and everything that's ever been invented from a hot air balloon to a laptop to laser eye surgery all of that really is an act of practical creative imagination coupled with self-belief probably a load of money in convincing other people too and then making it happen so yeah in terms of changing the world i mean obviously we have to look at doing things differently and I think this is where creativity is, plays even more part in terms of breaking what's considered to be like convention or norm. So you say, yeah, but that's just the way the world is. You know, I don't know how many times I hear that. Yeah, but, you know, that's just the way the world is. Air travel. I love to fly all over the world. I've had amazing adventures, but we have to reimagine how international travel can happen because the damage that that air travel is doing to our planet is beyond the point of irreversible so it's things like that if you just say there's no more air travel then no one's going to go along with that so you have to imagine and create a way not only to solve the problem but also how to move people into it and all of that you have to have such belief when i the first person said i've got this idea you know there's this enormous computer we've all seen the photos of a a hall sized computer imagine the first time someone said what about what about if we could make it small enough that it could sit on your lap? We could call it a laptop because it's on top of your lap. You would go, what? What are you talking? Get out of here. You're fired, you lunatic. <laughs> but now every single household has a laptop. Every single household has filament light switch. But then we say we can make light bulbs that only use a fraction of the voltage. So actually, like th there isn't a single creation, be it technologically, medically, theological like there isn't anything that's not an act of creativity even arguably religion and, and theology whether you believe in it or don't it's still a very creative way to represent and to tell the narrative of the god if you believe in it or organize religion as a societal structure if you don't so even that is playful you couldn't just say don't do this don't do that there has to be a creative infrastructure around it for us to buy into so all of that is nothing if it's not accompanied by self-belief. You know, how many people you meet in your life, especially now we're getting slightly older, who say, oh, do you know what I always dreamt of when I was younger? I always thought that I would blah, 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 blah. Or as soon as we've paid the mortgage off, we're planning to blah, 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 blah. And you think, stop planning to do things and just get doing things. You know, the world is waiting for your amazing idea. The world is built on incredible creative impulses from a millennia of humans making stuff up and i guess the thing that differentiates us from the rest of the animal kingdom in some ways not entirely obviously attenborough's shattered that myth that we're the only ones who can be creative but the thing that really does separate us is all of our infrastructure our food our relations our societal conventions really all come from our imagination we made up a thing called money we made up a thing called uh, schooling we made up a thing called the welfare state we made up ferries and trains and motorcycles and written books and ping pong bats and and, and it, we just made it all up and now it exists <laughs> and, you, and and there's this thing that we now seem to think everything's made up and so we tried to come up with these kind of different ways of doing the same thing so we've actually got a much bigger job of imagination i think now we have to imagine how to undo and scale back from it's quite how saturated we are in detail. You want to peel a potato. You've got 62 different ways to peel a potato with a peeler, a spiralizer, or this or that. Just use a bloody peeler and 
you've got more time in your life. You can do other stuff than think about gadgets <laughs> for potatoes. And it's all plastic and we've got to turn the plastic tap off. So it's, I think creativity, we often think, you know, when you say creativity, you think of people painting pictures or writing songs, but actually there is no such thing as a person who's not creative. You know, you had to believe in the ability or the creativity to learn how to use your legs and walk about if you're born with legs. So from the moment we're born, we start imagining and creating and believing in ourselves. And at some point, I think normally in early adolescence, that stops. You stop, you know, I do a thing at festivals where I say, hands up who learned an instrument when they were young. Everyone puts their hands up. And I say, now keep your hands up if you still play the instrument. And 80% of all the grown-ups put their hands down. Mm. And I say, why? And they go, oh, I wasn't very good. I say, but when you ask a kid why they still play, then they're not very good. There's not many five-year-olds who can play a recorder in a way that doesn't make your ears bleed, but they do it because it's fun. <laughs> and as adults, around, I think, adolescence, when we start to become self-aware and worried about what people think of us and wishing we were something or someone else or trying to, you stop doing stuff for the joy of it and you start doing stuff for grades or, for, or to hide or to show off or to be egotistical or to disappear so no one notices you in school. And suddenly all the things that are like the fabric and spicy, lovely bits of creating and imagining your life become limited by pressures or unfortunately a very one-sided academic approach to education. I really like that piece around self-belief. And if you don't have that belief, like, like you said, if, if you're born, you're creative. But you don't, if you don't have that belief, it, it doesn't go anywhere. Mm. It's like we were talking before about the marathons. If you don't believe you can get there, you'll never get off the couch. Yeah, See, I've, I've, I've got a motto that I wasn't taught as a kid. I have to tell you, like, that's why the Seagull Project is called the Flying Seagull Project. It's from the book Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which I think we've talked about already. But that's the point. It's the message is you're limited only by the idea you have of yourself. And if you've got someone, if you're lucky enough to have someone in your life that tells you you can do it, that's all you need. It's, it's not even like you can be a rubbish horse rider, but if you ride horses for long enough, you'll become quite good at it. You do anything for long enough, you become quite good at it, or at least you get good enough to enjoy it. But it does take that. And I've got a motto that I say to myself often because I come from a very, I'm sorry, mum, but it's the truth, very average family. We're not an exceptional group. <laughs> We're your run-of-the-mill bunch of British people who... She reads the mail and we like a Sunday roast. We used to watch Gladiators and Blind Date on a Saturday. We're nothing special. So I have to remind myself because I believe I can do special things. and I'm having a really special, wonderful life. I don't know anyone quite who doesn't look at the things I'm up to and the life I'm having. And go, wow. And I say, wow, like every day I'm blown away and excited. And it's because I say to myself, if it can be done, I can do it. And it's a really important motto. And, and we're not taught that enough. We're taught you've got to do what you need to do to get by and you've got to think about your future. But what sort of future is it if you don't believe in what you're doing and you don't believe in yourself within it? The idea of self-belief, maybe it's the two sides of the same coin, but it's self-belief is that idea of listening to yourself rather than listening to others. There's a bit about that. It's, it's others tend to can quash that creative spark, can't they? Mm. If you listen too much to them. Yeah, you have to get really strict and, and it makes you a bit yeah. it makes you a bit unpopular. And I've had a few experiences, especially the last few years, where you know I've I've lost some couple of really good friends who just don't, you know, don't want to be in touch or don't want to stay in touch. And and over the years that's happened quite a lot of times. And I guess it's I get accused of, and I can really understand why, of being arrogant or conceited or single-minded or self-obsessed. And I don't think those things are true, though there are elements of all of that within my role of running something and and that needs an element of bravado. You know, I'm going to go and convince 
40 professional circus performers to do it for free day in day out in a rough place where they have to share a room in the cold you've got to have some element of bravado but it's actually not listening to yourself or anyone else it's not caring one way or the other so what if you say i can't do it maybe i can't so what if i say i can't do it maybe i can't but there's only one way i'm ever going to find out if i can and that's by trying and if i only try a little bit because i don't think i can don't bother doing it at all because it's, it's like you have to just give it a pop with everything and the worst thing that will happen is you can't do it you can't do it and it all goes wrong and you've wasted time and money so what what's worse surely is regretting getting to like the end of your life and going i never gave that a pop i never tried and that's a shame because who cares if you fail i don't care so what i can't unicycle i've tried for weeks months years but i like it it's fun and who cares you can't do everything and I think Hollywood is partly responsible and, and film culture is partly responsible where we have these and they are only stories. They are only fiction, but we all want to be the one, the leading guy who, you know, show me the money. You want to be Tom Cruise, who always is the one that does it, the best pilot, the best race car driver. And it happens all over, you know, all the films of Leo and especially around the kind of patriarchal male focus where the man is strong enough that he just is the one that can do it all and save everything. Like, that's all a nonsense. The toughest thing is to be happy. And the only way to be happy is to be yourself. Warts and all. <laughs> so I think part of being yourself is to create, is to go out and make and imagine and do new things and bring things forth into the world that weren't there before, which you've all been talking about. We're a loosely business-based podcast, so I'd like to jump in on some of your, I guess, your advice, your insight. So if you're sitting at home, you're listening to this, what are some, maybe a bit stumped around, look, well, I don't know, play, what am I going to do, start, you know, running around the backyard being silly or like, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. stumped on what you might do. How might you bring in some more play and imagination just on that personal level? I mean, this is, again, like, it's something that I've accidentally got pigeonholed into a few times in the last year in podcasts where it's like, people go, oh, so, you know, so do you think adults should play more? Like, I'm a, we're grown-ups. Like, do I think that in the office we should fill it full of plastic balls and, and pretend we're pirates? Like, I definitely don't think that. But, <laughs> but was life better when you were younger and when you were little and you could do things you loved, riding that energy, that surge of passion? Yeah. And those of us who are lucky enough and it doesn't just have to be, okay, I'm a clown. It's an easy leap. But I know architects, friends of mine, who love, love sitting in front of their board and working on a new, you know, new piece of engineering drawing or whatever. Like, it's not about the job you have being a specific type of job, but you have to have a loving relationship with the work you do. Otherwise, it's a drag. And I know that that's a very slightly idealistic thing to say, but I think there is an urgency to it, which is that you are only alive for a bit. Now, you might be alive for a long bit, 90 years, or you might be alive for a shorter bit, 50 years, or, you know, you never really know. And it's like, I think you're naturally more playful when you're doing something that you're passionate about, because you know, that playful energy is a similar thing to joy or to bliss or to inspiration. That, that's all kind of what play is. And if you watch kids play, especially when they're doing just make-believe play you put them in the garden and want to go, right, okay, so I'm a shopkeeper, right? And you're a pirate and that's your ship. Yeah, but what about this if it's my barrel? Yeah, the barrel's great. But no, I was going to use that because that's going to be my checkout. You know, and you just watch them with that beautiful, 
bubbling energy, just naming the things around them and getting on with it. And I do believe that a workplace can have that energy, but that you need two elements. One, you need people who are doing the job because they are passionate about that. Okay, maybe they're trying to climb their way up and it's not exactly what they want to do, but they've got to have an interest in the craft somewhere. And two, you've got to somehow have a business where your employees know that the most powerful and valuable resource that they can offer you is themselves, and they have to be empowered to offer that. So if you're telling them how to do something when they start, which I'm really guilty of, I'm coming out of that now in the last year or so, but especially because you know I was onto something, the formula was good, the techniques worked, the festivals went well, as long as they do it like I do it, we'll be fine. And it's so limiting, and it doesn't allow that kind of the imagination and playfulness of others to flourish. So I think whether you're running a record label or an architect's firm, I don't know why I keep saying architects, but whatever. <laughs> I can't think of another sensible job that doesn't sound boring. Or if you're <laughs> a, a chartered um, accountant. But it's true, like well, our bookkeeper, Georgina, loves numbers. She loves numbers. She loves maybe not bookkeeping, but she loves mathematics and numbers and stuff. And I recognize in her that she is our resource. Her passion and her joy in it is what I need to employ, not do it exactly as we say. So coming back to the answer, if I can try to find that, somewhere along there was a question which I've once again gone down a rabbit hole of ramble, is that I don't think adults have to play more, but they need to be more playful. You know, that play idea of adults playing games, yeah, it's a bit sickly and you can force it, but it's like, I'm almost 40. I don't want to play hide and seek. Actually, I do. I love hide and seek. Let's pick a different one. Actually, it doesn't work for me because I do love messing around with my stupid team. But as I went to a meeting once, I used to work for a marketing company for two weeks before I, I kind of became more and more elaborately dressed because I felt more and more oppressed by the environment. And then I left really, really early and said, thank you for reminding me why I never want to work in this sort of environment. But they made us have meetings in a ball pit full of plastic <laughs> balls. <laughs> and I don't know, it's bloody annoying. You can't, it hurts your ankles because you can't quite stand up. Like, where do you rest your pad? I'm trying to, and it's like, guys, we're grown-ups planning the launch of a Ginster's pasty campaign. Can we just sit at a desk? This is nonsense. And it's that, like, that's what I mean. That's pantomime. It's not true. It's not authentic. Finding ways to encourage people to be more playful. And I think it is better. And I think the quickest route is really trying to recognize and get to know who the people that work with you are. Team building's good. Days out are good. Even going down the pub and finding time, maybe not every week, and it's not always appropriate for all management to work with everybody. But like, really look, know each other, get to know each other, find out what makes them tick, and try to involve as much of that in the job. I was thinking that's a, a nice lead into that. Ash was from the indiv that individuals and how they might bring it into their own work and life the teams thing is really interesting i wondered if advice you'd have for teams because you work very much in a close-knit team that is ever evolving and changing have you learned things along the way about how to work in a team that is being deeply creative and playful yeah it's a weird one and i'm sure if my team listened they'd spit raises at the idea that i've got it right because i definitely don't but i think a lot of the time people just want to be heard and they don't and so like, as I say, like, I started the Seagulls. I invented most of the shows. It's a system that I'm kind of, that I feel like I've kind of headed for a while. And so, like, I only want them to do it the way that I know how to do it, not because I think I invented it and that makes me brilliant, but because I think the impact of the way I do it is really good. And so, like, I don't think they're rubbish. 
I think the system we've accidentally kind of developed is really good. However, if they don't hear me say that, then they don't know. And if I don't hear their thoughts on it, then they're voiceless. And it's kind of, yeah, I just don't think that. I think most people just want to be heard. They don't even want to change it half the time. They just want to say, I had this idea or, you know what, I really like that bit and I'd like to do more of that. And so, yeah, within our team, we've now made it kind of almost procedurally written up to find the time to chat. And actually, like on a three week or four week tour, every weekend I sit down with every one of the team for five minutes informally and just make sure I go, how are you getting on? You're right. How are you finding it? And they know they'll go and they'll never say, oh, it's awful. You're a monster. But at least they've had the chance. And they'll go, yeah, I'm finding it quite difficult. And I'll go, yeah, it is difficult. That's why you find it difficult. Don't worry about it. So I'm not very good at it, to be honest, because also in the circus world, there is a very rigid, very hard, hierarchical grafting kind of infrastructure. I've just been reading Jerry Cottle's book. He's one of the most famous circus men that ever yeah, yeah. He just died yeah. actually last week. So I'm reading his yeah, book. It's yeah, phenomenal. Right. Yeah. But there's a hell of a lot of graft. And if you're working, same as on a in a construction site, there, there isn't always time to have that kind of playful, modern discussion approach. Mm-hmm. Like if you've got a girder hanging above your head by, held by a crane, people got to do their job on the in the right moment but you should find a time outside of that. So yeah, I really believe in hard work. I think if you work your butt off, I don't have to tell you to work your butt off, just do it and I'll do it. And we'll all just work our butts off. And then afterwards it's done. We can have a couple of beers and a lovely time. So if you're a a CEO and we all understand the nuances of teams and if they were easy, everyone would have it perfectly. But I like this sense of you don't have to play more, which, you know, ping pong all day, throwing beanbags at each other, um, crazy hair day or, you know, whatever, maybe some of those more traditional ways of, oh, let's do something crazy in the office. But it's around that uh, you don't have to play more, just be more playful. We know that play brings in a more open mind, a more creative mindset, more imagination. If you're a CEO and you want to bring in that, the benefits of being more playful and more let's having more imagination in your organization what are some of the things you might want to think about we might have covered them off but you're the boss what might you encourage people to do i mean i quite like the idea i said this to someone recently we were talking about it because we are trying to come up with new ideas and the best ideas and the stupidest ideas are kind of they come out the same well So you don't know how many brilliant ones before a crap one comes or vice versa. So I quite like the idea of a pressure off bullshit session. So you just go in and go, listen, it doesn't matter. And in fact, we do it in the, I do all of my ideas. I write on whiteboards. I should say that I can't stand writing things on a computer. It doesn't suit me. And I can't stand writing it on pads because I don't know which page it's on. So I've got about 15 huge whiteboards. And when I really want to splurge my thoughts, I've propped them all up. I've got tons of pens and I just write and write and draw and things across and then write. So I think having like a, a pressure off bullshit session where you go, there is no idea that we're going to knock. Just say anything. In fact, you give a financial incentive. I'm going to give a 50 pound you know, drinks voucher to the worst and most ridiculous idea. Really flip, like I call it, you know, it's flip the script. Say it doesn't like, you're just you're going to stumble across something brilliant. You really are. You're going to stumble across something awesome if you just take the pressure off. And there's drama games and stuff. And some of those drama games are really good. There are ice-breaking games. You get a good team-building company in, and you will loosen up. You know, someone who's introverted, you can't just say, come on, say a good idea, anything, come on. But there are you know mechanisms to get it around. But somehow it's that pressure off. 
I think even if it's one day a month where the whole day, you know, flip rolls, do it. Okay, today. And you literally put all the rolls in a hat one day a month or one day a quarter. Put everyone's job title in a hat. When you go in, you jumble it up and each of you takes a new job for the day. Why not? Like it'd be a laugh, wouldn't it? Yeah, what CEO ends up in the mailroom, that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. But why not? I mean, it's the only way you're ever going to know how your business runs. When I was mm, 18, I worked for Virgin Music. I was the assistant manager of Bedford V Shop, which is like a little tiny music shop. And at the time, Virgin were doing this directors to the shop floor publicity stunt. So they sent all their top guys down. So I had a guy called Richard Ash, who was the number three from Branson. So it's Branson, some other bloke, Chris Ash. And he was working under me in the V shop in Bedford. And I gave him a right hard time and he loved it. And it was, he really had a good time, but he also understood. I was like, hey, hey, off the phone and get the broom. The floor ain't sweeping itself. I don't, if you're here as my staff, you get working. And it was like the energy that he saw from getting to know that I think really worked. Okay. You couldn't do it all the time, but you walk a day in someone else's shoes and you know what they're going through. And if you're a CEO, you need to know what everyone's going through. You need to understand all of it. Yes, I I think it's playful and funny, but you have to genuinely do it to pressure off. And you've got to stick to it. In my book, I talk about comedic contracts. You've got to stick to it. If you say one day a quarter, we're doing this, you can't go, oh, no, look, I don't care what I said. You know, you've got to make it real and honor that space. And that sounds like a really modern, pretentious thing to say, but you've got to honor the space. It, It matters. People's feelings do matter. I mean, as as you were saying that, Ash, I was just thinking that two things that struck me was the, um, as you were saying about the walking the mile in someone else's shoes, I mean, that would be a definition of empathy. And that is one of those things. And empathy is something that makes you curious, doesn't it? You're curious about other people. You're curious about their experience. That in itself creates new thinking and ideas if you're just interested in what's going on for them. Yeah, and it doesn't take long, you know, like, and I think most CEO, I mean, I don't know, I say most CEOs, I don't even know that I know another CEO, and I'm not, I'm only a pretend CEO, I'm a clown, clown executive officer. (laughs) Name check someone who's not far from Branson, so that's it, that's not Yeah, well, there you go. But it doesn't take very long, and I think, again, like, people want to be heard, but you haven't got to listen to them all day, you haven't got to sit down for fun two hours with every, you know, employee just a check-in and we do it with our team we do it once a year with my team leaders and I say to them what would make you happier give me five things that you want from us that you don't currently get or don't get enough of that would make you feel happy in your job and I'm going to tell you five things I would like you to offer next year and I do things like professional development I say your first aid is not up to scratch or even sometimes personal sometimes I say like you're a bit aggressive when it comes to project planning. And I don't think you recognize me as a resource, but I've done this for 15 years. So I am your number one resource. And it worries me that you don't see that. So I would like you to recognize me as a resource this year. And even if you think I'm an idiot, maybe I am. I'm an idiot who's done festivals for 10 years. And so it's like, well, and we exchange it. We only do it once a year and it takes about half an hour a person. But even just that, just asking them, what would make you feel happier? Not what courses would you like to go on? Ask him an emotional question. And I think whoever you are, whatever company it is, people want to hear from the CEO. They want, even if you think they think you're an idiot, they probably do, but they still want you to look at them and say, well done, or what do you want? And with that, Ash, people have got to feel safe, haven't they, to a degree in all of this? Yeah. Um, They've got to feel, to your point, you know, the no pressure bullshit day, 
Or was it no bullshit? What was it? No bullshit pressure day. No pressure, pressure off bullshit, bullshit day. I don't know. Made it up on the spot. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> needs a rebrand, <laughs> but I get the. <laughs> but mm. uh, but it needs. Uh, yeah, you need to feel because you put yourself out there, don't you? You are vulnerable if you put yourself out there with any of this, and so it's got to be that just the whole thing of trust yeah. and safety. I really think it works both ways. In that, there's a reason why CEOs are often really kind of impatient, a bit brash, and don't have enough time people because the amount i mean i'm i'm a ceo of a mid-sized you know mid to small size charity we have two almost three international offices and i don't know seven staff i have never got to the end of my work list in the last 10 years i never get to the end of my list my phone goes continuously every day and i'm a small ceo of a tiny charity i think it's a two-way street of compassion as well you know you can't expect that they're going to recognize that You've cleaned up the office kitchen every day and he hasn't even noticed it. Well, you know, what? probably handling 92 different things and all the stuff. But I think those play days mm. or those bullshit moments, it lifts the pressure off. And also you can get really caught up on small things. We're trying to redesign our website at the moment. Now, I know that the person who works for me in comms, I know he works really hard. I trust him. He's worked for me for years now. But you get hung up on these tiny, tiny things that if you don't just take a breath for context, you know, you're close to going, ah, oh, I'm going to fire him if he doesn't reduce the banner width underneath the second heading on the third page. <laughs> and it, you've got to get some context. And you He know, does it, now. Yeah, I mean, Martin, if you're listening, take the banner size now. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Matt. Yeah. But it's true, you know, you've got to get a bit of context. And it's not always a pub, but it's got to be something. You know, that's why I think office, not away days necessarily, but it's a resource. The people that are working for you are the only reason you have a business. You may think the business happens because of you. The only reason you have a business is because of everyone that works on it with you. And without a team, you're just a person carrying a, a burden that no one can. The one successful bit of team management that we had, and that was when we were in Romania, 2013, we took over an abandoned school and we lived, myself and Jolene, who's one of our Dutch team, we lived there full time for a year without electricity, but no running water, running this center, bit off far more than we could chew. Like you tried to paint the school and the wall fell down on the day one. It was like, wow, we have underestimated this challenge. And we started getting really narky with each other. And we started getting annoyed with the kids for not recognizing how much work had gone into it or not on it. So we introduced the board of brilliance and the bucket of goodbyes. So the board of brilliance is a chalk, is a cork board. And you, we sat down. First of all, we did the bucket of goodbyes. Sorry. So first of all, you write down something that sucked about that week or that day or that whatever. Or it could be about a member of staff. What do you hate about the boss if you want to go down that line? So we wrote it on a piece of paper. We screwed it up. We put it in a metal bucket and we set fire to it. And we did it every single week on a Sunday at the end of the week. And you're not allowed, once it's gone, the commitment is it's gone. I'm not going to say, oh, what did you write? Oh, I wrote about when you stole the last muesli. It's none of that. It's gone. And then you have the board of brilliance. And the board of brilliance is you write something that was brilliant about that week, work or friendship or something. You know, that kid who did that or that time, Yolene, that you had my back. And I, you just, you write it on a piece of paper and then you go around a circle and you read it out. Yoles, when you did that thing with the kids in the dance class, it was so perfect that it made the whole week worthwhile. And you pin it on the board and it stays on the board forever. So all, your, all the good bits stay on the board. And you can. And whenever you're feeling annoyed with Yolene or you're feeling annoyed with work, you just go and read the board for five minutes and it will cheer you right back up. And whenever you think, oh, I'm annoyed with Yolene still about that, you think, nope, that went in the bucket of goodbyes. It's gone. I've let that go. 
and it is only symbolic and it is silly but like that's the sort of discipline i like you make a stupid pact if i put it on a paper and burn it is gone and what is the point you're only going to make yourself sick anyway I like and that. it brings into those these elements we've uh, talked about, a little bit of play, a little bit of storytelling, some imagination, some fun, and you've turned what can be quite, you know, maybe a, a shitty rumble time or, you know, whatever that might be, a, a shitty moment. You've turned into a little bit of fun with some imagination and a, a little mm. bit of joy, a little bit of humour. And the funny thing is, man, is that you'd think it'd be insincere. Like you sit down, you go, all right, I know it's a bit daft, but come on, do, bear with me. But honestly, like I'd say 50% of the time, at least you just think about it. You think, wow, actually, wow, that was really amazing. And you just for a second, you search, you know, delight detectives, we call them. Like, you search out the good bits and you forget to do that because especially in modern culture and especially for an Englishman, we focus on the negative and the pessimism and what went wrong. And in a business, we almost all do that. It's rare that you go, do you know what? We pulled off that last week without anyone even it's amazing. And, and it's quite often you'd read it out and you'd feel quite moved and you'd feel so much closer because you put yourself, I mean, it is a bit vulnerable. You don't even realize that you've written something really kind of sentimental until you do it. And then you go, wow, I actually really mean this. You were amazing on Thursday. You were absolutely amazing. And I went to bed thinking about it because I was inspired by the way you, you did so-and-so. And so, yeah, a bit of fun quickly becomes really quite loving and, and can be really bonding. I'm just looking at a red bin next to my desk, which was my paper bin, which I emptied yesterday for recycling. But that is now going to be my bucket of goodbyes. And I've just eyeballed a, a spot for the board of brilliance. I really like this. I'm, yeah. I'm going to uh, play with this and with the family as well. I think this is a great I idea. Think, I think Sally and the kids will be filling it up again pretty soon. Yeah, well, I reckon their bucket of goodbyes about me will be massive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've got, we've got a skip got of got goodbyes a outside ours. There's my bin. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, had to, we, had to, we had to phone the council and get a much bigger container for me. So. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're waiting on an, an, old, an old shipping container. We're going to jump into a, another thought experiment and this one we've read where you describe someone as an anarchist clown pirate so it's how you describe someone's job which i thought was a really great job title so our thought experiment is we would like to explore some job titles to see if they are real or not now john has some job titles and it's our job to work out if they're real or not so it's a little bit of a, a game it is a game. So Simon hasn't heard these either, Ash. So it is an equal competition here. Mm-hmm. For uh, the record, yeah, the anarchist, anarchist clown pirate is an actual job description. They are actual anarchists, actual clowns, and actually live on yachts as pirates. So that's <laughs> that's, that's where real. I heard it. I, I heard that, and I thought, thought, why was that job never offered to me when I was growing up at school? Because of your white socks and Crocs, mate. You just you're not pirate material. No anarchist wears crocs and socks, man. Right. Let's do this. So, job titles. Real? Well, first off, can you guess what they are? And are they real or not? So, number one, uh, pro-cure. That's real. Pro, that's that's real, you think, I Ash, reckon that's real, yeah. Do you think that's real, Simon? What do you think? A pro-cure. I would say it comes from the world of procurement or something. I was thinking your pro things being cured. Uh, oh, no, like diseases cure. or something. No, 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 cue. 
as informing okay. as you. Ah, ah, yeah. Is well, that, that's that's definitely real because that's an English thing. You love cues. Is, is that what you heard, Ash? Cue, yeah, I heard cue. procure, not procuring, not which is like another word for doctor, isn't it? I'm a procurer. <laughs> right, I, I'd say so, procure is real and it's someone who maybe works for the British government at maybe like national heritage sites and people line up and they go around they go orderly queue please orderly queue maybe they're seeing a bit of disruption going to you know like sky gardens in london or something and they're oh queue pro queue i'm a pro queue i reckon it's real and i think Uh there's two times they're booked one of them is it's like Apple's got a new iPhone coming out. You can pay somebody to go and stand in place for you for like two days before, and then you rock up for it. I reckon that's what it is. You are absolutely right, Ash. So that is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely a, a point to Ash in there. Uh, yeah, they can earn up to 100 and £150 a day to go stand in a queue. And your example is queuing for the latest Apple product. There you go. Who knew? Well, you did. <laughs> I guess, but I mean, you know, people go mad for those things. Next one is a surf barista. A surf barista. I'm going to say this is false because trying to, as a surfer, and I think Ash, you're a surfer as well, trying to uh, someone paddle out with a coffee into the (laughs) surf even though we've thought about this we discuss this a lot this whole process of because we always have coffee i mean have surf then go for coffee sort of like the that's part of our ritual but we thought imagine if you get it in the surf but i think the logistics of it are too tough Mm. (laughs) my latte is no so (laughs) i the thing is i mean i don't know i firstly like saying i am a surfer is the most complimentary that i i know how to sit on a board and not fall off for too long but um i wonder because simon you're you, are you do you live in australia and you mainly surf there okay so you wouldn't have the same need for a coffee on a surfboard as a uk surfer because it is it can get proper cold so i'm I, i've never seen them i've as you say we always surf you don't really want to stop and have a coffee out back behind the lineup like it'd be weird and then when you're done it's the nicest bit when you go to the beach cafe and you have an egg sandwich and and so however you could strap a flask to your back you paddle out with all the bits you get behind the back line and you swim around and you say i'm gonna say it's not true but it's a good idea (laughs) it is not true it is not true i completely made that up but now you've discussed it in a very creative curious and imaginative way there is a gap in the market (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know there's one problem there's one problem how do they pay oh you no, have to have your, ba- your bank card like coffee credits in your wetsuit like it's never going to happen surfers are never going to go for it <laughs> okay last one is light bender that's true and it's, I, it's got to be some events thing some events display person or they bend light for scientific experiment it's true now when I think about this one, when I think around uh, Mickey Flanagan, the comedian, and he spoke around, uh, are you going out or are you going out, out? And so this difference. So it's sort of like you're having a light bender or a big bender. I'll just light bender tonight. I'll be fine for tomorrow. So <laughs> I wonder if it could be uh, a phrase used in another way, but I think it's true as well. It is true. It is someone who is responsible for a high-tech precision job of making neon lights. 
There you go. Something new. A light mm. bender. Um, and that was someone's idea, wasn't it? Somebody said, hey, what about if we could make lights a thing called neon? We go, what? What's neon? They go, you'll see. Check this out. Yeah, yeah go Ooh. talk to Jeff. He's a light bender. Yeah. <laughs> but he's been on a heavy bender the night before, so he might want to get <laughs> a surf coffee on the way. But imagine it's almost there's someone in the village, oh, the house is a bit dark, and oh, you need to go see the light bender. You'll sort that uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> This thing about jobs, actually, Simon, can I just share, Ash, will you indulge? I've got a, I had an anecdote about this as well, Simon, which was about jobs again, because <laughs> there was a new national career service thing launched by the government here in the UK. And it was a an online thing where you could go on and you answer these questions. Do you like this? Do you like that? Do you want to work with people? Do you want to sit in a dark room on your own? All those kind of things. And you <laughs> go through this thing and then it pops out an answer to tell you a suitable job. So I did this. <laughs> and this is how it read. I've, I've, I've got to read this out. So at the end of me completing this 40 question questionnaire, it said, your answers show you are a creative person and enjoy coming up with new ways of doing things. You are sociable and find it easy to understand people. You like to lead other people and are good at taking control of situations. Because of your answers, we could not recommend any jobs. <laughs> oh, no. and that was it. That was it. Do you want to take this test again? No. <laughs> I mean, what a positive review for what is ultimately an unemployable person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is why I find myself doing a podcast. I did that. I did that retrain thing just for fun. You know, the government recently saying to creatives, you know, retrain. So I yeah. filled out the form and I got horse groomer. <laughs> <laughs> I could be a horse groomer. <laughs> I've never groomed a horse, but apparently I'm qualified. <laughs> what a kid, you know, was it, seven was years it? in theatrical training, horse oh. groomer. That was question 27 in the test, wasn't it? It said, do you like horse horse grooming? <laughs> yeah. How are you with a, with a yes. handheld brush? One to five. Four, I have a big beard. Mm, experience with longer, more wiry hair, huh? Typical horse grooming qualification. Now, we're going to jump into another rapid fire round. Ash, what's one thing you couldn't do without in your life at the moment? campfires <laughs> what's your guilty pleasure at the moment i said it earlier really but short clips of dragon's den now we are building the occupational philosophers manigesto so what's the one thing out of all your learning that you think should be included on our manigesto mm. every world changing idea started out rubbish it's kind of a saying. I don't know if that's exactly what I was meant to do. Also, no, perfect. That's it. That's in. Can I do a part two? Yes. Your financial records will never be organized once they're not. Take care of them from the beginning. <laughs> <sighs> that's one for the, uh, the professionals. Creativity and accounts are not bedfellows. <laughs> no, like. It's a lovely Venn diagram. Is there a favourite quote you would share that has been a guiding light for you? Yeah, it's the one from the Jonathan Livingston Seagull book, which is why the project was named. But um, 
I kind of I am paraphrasing it, but I have done for a decade now, so I feel like it's become correct, which is you're limited only by the idea you have of yourself. And when you know this, you are free to be limitless. So it's something like that. But lovely. Yeah, you're just you're limited only by the idea of you have yourself. You look at people. I watch um what's his name? Born in the USA. The boss. Oh what's his name? Springsteen. Springsteen. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen. I'm sorry, I know a lot of people are gonna dislike me after this comment, but he's not really that good. He's just confident and he's called the boss. Ooh. And I had a free ticket to go to Wembley. A friend of mine works there. It was a free ticket in the box, and it was free pizza and a couple of beers and watching Springsteen. I thought, well, I don't know any of his songs apart from Born in the USA, but he must be good because he's one of them names that we've been around forever. It was just a confidence trick. And I watched and I thought, yeah, that's it. It's just a confidence trick. He's all right. He writes a few songs that people like, but you think you like them all because he thinks you should. So you do. <laughs> so. <laughs> You're limited only by the idea you have of yourself. Now, on that, that's a nice one into our next question. You're being taken to your retirement home. How would you like to be introduced to the people who are already there? So here's Ash. He is going to be a bad influence here. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Strap in. Here's Ash. Yeah, retirement homes. I think, to be honest with you, when I get to retirement age, that's going to be my new project. Like, spice them up. I'm sick of this idea that old people are just left to fade into cardboard cutouts of themselves until they wither and die. Like, if you've ever earned the right to have a dynamic few years, it's at the end of a long life's work. This, like, crusty, sit them in front of a telly, give them bland food that tastes of salt. How dare we treat the elderly that way? When I get to retirement age, my project will be to set up play houses for the mad and elderly (laughs) it would be great we'll have fencing for the elderly let's get it going (laughs) you're going to revolutionize the social care sector (laughs) from the inside (laughs) what are you up to next ash what's kind of sort of big things happening out there for you Mm, well the next month is with our showmobile so that's going to be as i say across london and Birmingham working with um, resettled refugee families and and food poverty, just destigmatizing the idea that you need a bit more help. I don't think asking for help is shameful. I think it's a great thing that a country can help each other and we should do it more. Then we are launching in the Netherlands a, a new team. So that'll be a, I'm flying to there and then hopefully Norway. But then it's, it's going to get really cool because then we are opening a creative arts and freedom space in Athens for unaccompanied teenagers who have found themselves um, stranded in Greece. We'll also work with some of the, the younger kids too, but we're going to focus on that teenagers. And we're looking at maybe making, starting a record label, giving them a radio station, a pirate radio where they can just do things. There'll be trapeze training, cinema nights. And, you know, Athens is one of the last, at least the last European vestiges. Vestiges. Is that a real word? Oases, let's say, of genuine, rebellious, beautiful, community focused anarchy. They just do things there. And, you know, Athens has a heartbeat, but it's also got 8,000 homeless refugees as of last month. And it's got a huge amount of problems in itself. So, yeah, that, that's, that's what's coming up next. More projects across Calais, more projects across Greece. We're going to go back to the borders of Syria again, which we've been doing for the last few years in Lebanon. And we just keep finding new ways to cheer life up a little. 
Now, if we want to connect with you, uh, you're sitting at home, you'd love to find out a little bit more about Ash. Where can we do that or where can we buy you a virtual drink? Flying Seagull Project, we have a website, but it is being redone currently. So you can check us out there. It's just theflyingseagullproject.com. But to be honest, our Facebook is the most updated and there's lots of videos and lots of info and lots of stuff on there. So, yeah, I would just say pop in there. It's, it's, it's a bit more lively than a website. I know if you run a website well, it has that. But I like the conversational element of social media. I, I like the fact it's quick and we can talk to each other. So, yeah, check us out there. And a beer, just, you know, keep your eyes out for a campfire in a field somewhere. And it may just be a, a bearded <laughs> wizard sitting by waiting for a pint. <laughs> Who is grooming a horse. <laughs> That's true. In the Barbary way, as in the, Yeah. <laughs> That's an image for us to finish on, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Ash, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for all your time. And you've been very generous with that. And it's been fantastic to hear all about what you do, what you're going to do, and all the stuff that you've learned along the way, which is really good to hear. So thank you. It's been a, a delight. Absolute pleasure. And and congratulations to you both for just, you know, making things happen. Have an idea thinking it might be fun and that being enough to make it begin. So yeah, brilliant. Best of luck with it all. And it was yeah, an honor to be invited on and lovely chatting. Thank, right. you. Thank you. Ash, happy horse grooming. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take it easy. John, what a fantastic guest we had today with Ash. Hey, Absolutely. Fantastic. I really enjoyed having Ash on. He's got such energy. He just had such passion, as you say, kind of great stories as well. Yeah. And also, he makes this stuff real. Like what he does with his charity around the globe, this is this intersection of play, learning, creativity, business acumen, passion, enthusiasm. This is that intersection of that stuff mashing up and being truly successful and making a huge dent in the universe as well. Yeah. And there was so much to take out of what he's offered up today. I just thought uh, it was going to be difficult to choose a top three, which we like to do, top three takeaways, but I'm going to have a go. Shall I say my top three? for the? Yeah, far away. I think self-belief was the big one for me. There was something about this whole thing whereby if we have self-belief and confidence, that that's what allows us to be liberated and be creative and express ourselves. So yeah, self-belief, I think that was a great message to keep sort of reminding ourselves. And in that way, then that quote that Ash had around, there's no such thing as not good enough, just as a real reminder to keep us moving forward, just to say, look, it is good enough. Just keep moving forward. If you've got the passion for it and you believe in it, keep going. So I'm going to have that above my desk. And then the final one, I think, was the fact that I suggested Surf Barista as a job. And whilst Ash rightly said it wasn't wasn't something that existed, he thought it was a good idea. And it's funny, we've talked about this so often, <laughs> literally the, the Surf Barista and how that could work or put coffee in your backpack. And there's something there, John, there's something there. However, you get really dehydrated when you drink coffee and then go for a surf. <laughs> which is why you always have it after. Anyway, coffee barista. All right, my top three. True play is not outcome-focused. And it's so always to think, well, I need to be as productive as I can. What am I going to achieve from this next half an hour? 
you don't actually, if you're going to play, the achievement is that joy, that imagination, that whatever that is. It doesn't have to be outcome focused. So that letting go of an outcome, which seems to run so counterintuitive to the world we work in and operate in, but letting go of that outcome, that is the outcome, if that makes sense. And that builds on my second one was about liberating your soul and I think maybe through 2020 where some souls have been crushed a little bit as well with, you know, there's been so much expectation, do this, do that. So doing something which liberates your soul, whatever that is, but just makes you feel that your best. And if you laugh with a full heart, you're beautiful. And sometimes you might, I often think, man, when did I, I like to laugh a lot, but you might, if you get at the end of the week, you think I haven't laughed, find something which will let you laugh with a full heart. I think, and it makes you be that wonderful, joyous, beautiful human we were designed to be. Just need to talk to me more often, Simon, than you will. You'll laugh more. I will. I will. I laugh at you in your socks. <laughs> so actually, that's if I want to laugh out loud. I don't need to think of Spain in about 2004 or something, and that, that will always bring a, a smile to my face. Just forget it. I can't wait to work out your clan name. Right. So look, if you enjoyed the show... Please subscribe, tell your friends, um, check out the show notes. Yeah, make a noise. And thanks for listening. Now stay curious, make stuff and play more.